Sarah Miniachi is a freelance book publicist, a book PR and marketing consultant. She set up her firm in 2009 after leaving Smith Publicity, where she'd worked for 10 years. Welcome, Sarah, to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. It's a pleasure to be here and a big fan of this podcast as one of the sort of premier sources of information in our crazy publishing world and community. So I appreciate the opportunity to be on. Very good. Tell me about Smith Publicity. Where, where to begin? So uh, Smith Publicity is one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, book PR firms in North America. They're headquartered in New Jersey and have been around for well over 20 years now. I started with Smith in, I'm terrible with dates, so sorry. Uh, and, and to be clear, it was tw- 2019 that, that I, I left Smith, not 2009. Oh, well, it says 2009 on your LinkedIn page. Ah, okay. Well, that, that's, that's simply a, a matter of clarifying that in the course of my employment with Smith Publicity, I was always a subcontractor. I was always technically oh. a freelancer. I see. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, no, that's actually, that's interesting. Uh, You know, I mean, and also a reflection of how many people work these days. Absolutely. So, I mean, Smith is, is very much an agency in the sense that, you know, name a genre or a type of author or publisher and they've done it, they do it, they're currently doing it, they're on it. So it was really, uh, you know, an incredible training ground for me as a publicist because I was uh, forced to very quickly adapt to genres and um, types of books that I wouldn't perhaps typically gravitate uh, towards promoting. Um, But in the agency model and the way Smith Publicity works, what I think makes them a, a great firm actually is that they're exceptionally democratic um, about their client base. So I had the opportunity to work on everything from, uh, you know, big five New York Times bestselling authors to first time self-published business books to children's books to genre fiction. So nowadays I'm a bit more specialized, but certainly, you know, working for Smith for, for over 10 years Uh, gave me a a diverse education in publicizing books. We're going to get into a couple of examples of how, and you've got a term for them, golden, (laughs) golden girls, golden boys. Golden children, the golden child. Golden children, yes. And those are the ones that get everything thrown at them. And then you also, uh, you've also talked about a couple of guys that just decided to write a book and get in a Toyota and drive across the country. Absolutely. We'll get to those. And where I found that was in Ken White's newsletter on the publishing business. He starts off back in the old days, writes Ken, say 2009, when I published my first book, The Uncrowned King, which is about William Randolph Hearst, and and I can certainly recommend it. A lively, unexpected, and impeccably researched piece of popular history, quote unquote, there was a well-established two-part process for publicizing a book. 
Part one involves sending advanced review copies to major media outlets across North America, following up with a pitch by a publicist and waiting to see if any newspapers, radios, and television programs would give you a review or some other form of coverage. Part two was the author tour, usually eight or 10 cities in Canada, the United States, readings and signings at bookstores and appearances at local media outlets and interviews with local critics and feature writers. It hasn't changed entirely because there's still some of that, isn't there? Absolutely, yep. Usually what I do on this podcast is I refer to my bibliophile reference library, but we're kind of shit out of luck when it comes to (laughs) what's really going on today. Although I did pull up an author's guide to publishing by Michael Leggett, and he talks a bit about the traditional way of publishing a book. And he, he references producing a catalog. Can you tell me a bit about how that works now and how a publicist might interact with the catalog that the publishing house puts together? So first and foremost, I would clarify that a catalog presumes that the book is being traditionally published and will be going through traditional publication channels, which include presentation to a sales force and, you know, specifically the distributor of the book. So publishers still put together catalogs and catalogs are effectively previews of the season to come. So right now we're in April uh, of, of 2022. Catalogs have recently been finalized for fall, winter 2022-2023, which is to say, and this is something I think a lot of people uh, don't and and particularly a lot of authors prior to uh, getting into the business don't really understand about publishing is the incredibly long lead times involved. So effectively by now, April of 2022, if your book is coming out between September through let's say February, March of 2023, September 22 through February, March of 23, the book has not only been committed to its publication date and and often its cover art as well. Um, It's also well along the editing process, uh, usually somewhere between the the edit and and the copy edit. Um, Advanced copies are being produced and the book is being sold into distribution channels. So that involves bookstores, libraries, um, and other institutions which which sell books. It's been presented to them. What percentage of publishers still print? Print a catalog? Yeah. Most, because the catalog is an effective marketing tool, not only for the sales and distribution teams, who it's, it's really important to understand how they work, because First and foremost, the the publisher presents the titles to those teams and those teams have their their favorites, their least favorites, Uh, you know, there's bias that goes on there. And that was a really revealing moment for me as a publicist, I have to say, was when I was first um, sort of introduced to that level of gatekeeping, where you realize why certain books become golden children, why they become runaway bestsellers. That really happens in often New York City boardrooms, many, many months ahead of publication date, where a sales force gets very excited. I should just quote uh, Leggett here. He says, 
although most publishers believe all of their geese to be swans, until publication proves otherwise, they do recognize that some are swanier and some geesier than others. If your publisher thinks your book belongs in the geesier section of his catalog, it's hard luck. That's absolutely correct. And, and that, again, is, I think, a big misconception by, by authors is that simply by being acquired and published, that that means that you will be given the same amount of attention and resources by everyone. You know, your placement in the catalog can actually often tell you a lot about where the publisher and the sales force um, see you sitting in the list. And the truth is that we're not only publishers are concerned, but booksellers and the, the sales teams and the, the whole ecosystem of selling a book, not every book can or will be a winner. We just don't know. That's right. That's right. However, favorites do get, golden children do get crowned very early on and, yeah. you know, just enormous resources um, yeah. go into ensuring that the bets that were made at the acquisition yes. stage yes. Uh, pay off. So yeah. when you see that book that, you know, everyone says, yeah, it's doing so well, but you know what? I read it and it's not that great. And I don't get what all the hype is about. Well, there, there's a whole sort of backroom process to that, that, that we, we don't really see um, as consumers or readers. Well, isn't that capitalism interfering with quality? It's a business. Uh, yeah. I mean, you can look at it that way, that it's sometimes it is for sure. But, but at other times, I think it's, it's simply the dynamics of publishing as a business and writers and all of the creative people who work in publishing, um, you know, hate to look at it that way. The truth is that it, it is and publishers wouldn't exist and booksellers wouldn't exist. And Of course, I guess what I'm saying, though, is that over time, quality does come to the fore. They're pushing because they want to get their money back. I would say uh, they do think they're all swans that's the that's the point but they some are some are golden swans that they've paid a lot for yeah absolutely and then i mean there are the the instances i, I wouldn't call them you know ordinary but but there are extraordinary instances where a book because it is a great work of literature because it contains you know cutting edge ideas that that the world can't stop talking about it um despite all odds stacked in its favor or, yeah. or stacked against its like, favor uh, it goes the distance the truth is that it is going to be very 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 hard for an author or a book to succeed uh it's, it's really going to be an uphill battle um without that early buy-in. So yes, publishers do still print catalogs, but mainly I would say they print them A, to give to the sales teams so that when those sales teams go to their accounts, which are booksellers, uh, generally speaking, they can leave them behind and they can say, look, you know, here's a, a quick little flip through resource where you can see the covers, you can get the highlights about the books and the authors. But the other way that the catalogs are used is that when the media engagement begins, when the publicity process begins, those catalogs can be included in the review copies of, of current books that are being sent out for review to, to let that book review editor or that features writer or that, you know, 
bibliophile hosts uh, know what's <laughs> coming next from that publisher and what they might be interested in. And you know what's interesting there is that if you get a book sent to you, one specific book, here's the catalog. It's almost like that serendipity thing in you go into a bookstore. Okay. You look at the catalog. Oh, wait a minute. Actually, look, look what else they've done. This looks really right up my alley. Yep, that's right. And and that might not be effectively conveyed through an email or, um, you know, another means of communication. But when you have that huge, pretty, you know, and, and publishers often spend a good deal of money ensuring that their catalogs are quite pretty um, because it's a physical object. When when that arrives on your doorstep, you, you know, you do look through it and you say, I really like that cover or, oh, I didn't realize that author went to that school where I also went or, or what have you. So yeah, the, the catalog can be can be a very helpful resource. You know, again, this all does not apply to anyone who's in the independent publishing, you know, self-published or hybrid published space. One of the great misconceptions, I think, in that community is that anything traditional publishing can do, indie publishing can do better. And the truth is that while this is only one piece of the puzzle, it's, it's quite, it can be quite a critical piece for authors and books that are looking to go that distance. I should note that I collect publishers' catalogs. Oh, you so do? I've got some beauties from the 30s. Yeah. Okay. So anything else on catalogs uh, as, it, as it pertains to the publicist's work? Only that the catalog really does dovetail, generally speaking, with the availability of the advanced review copy. You'll sometimes hear that referred to as an advanced reader copy or a galley, but you know the terms ARC and galley tend to be pretty interchangeable. Um, yeah. And they often coincide with the, the production of that catalog with the finalization of the upcoming books list. Uh, there's also the proof copy, which would go out. And what you're trying to do there is to get some sort of a pre-publication puff so yeah. that you can actually put that on the first edition of the book that's coming out. Yes, that's right. Um, so that advanced copy is, is again, critical to what's going to happen with that book around its publication date. Um, specifically book reviews and, and even more specifically the trades, which are sort of shadow influencers in the uh, books landscape. If you work in the publishing industry, you know them, but if you're just a, a reader, you might not. Uh, so those are publications like Publishers Weekly, Booklist, Library Journal. In Canada, of course, we have the Quill Inquire, uh, a, a handful of others, and they really like to receive, and by, by like, I mean demand. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they demand to receive uh, pre-release copies of books anywhere between, I would say, four to eight months prior to publication date. The more lead time, the better. If you're not sending them an advanced copy until two or three months prior to the book's publication, um, in all likelihood, it's not going to get covered by those trades. And those trades are where the editors of publications like the New York Times Book Review or hosts at NPR or the CBC really have uh, their finger on the pulse of what's coming, um, what's notable, what should we be be on the lookout for. So yeah, those those pre-proofs are really important. 
Okay, here's Leggett again. Many authors are bitterly disappointed by the lack of reviews of their books and often blame the publishers. But it's not really their fault, and they are often as disappointed as you are. <laughs> so I guess you hear a fair amount of, how come I didn't get any reviews? Oh my goodness, Nigel. Not any, but I'm sure you, you get a certain amount. I mean, that's what you have to put up with, right? That's that's a, a big part of it. Um, you know, I, I have been been known to at times refer to my job as a, in addition to book publicist, also professional handholder. Um, <laughs> yes, because there's there's quite a bit of that. Well, they also would critique your work. They mean it's they would measure your work by the amount of coverage you get. Absolutely. And one of the most difficult things about being a book publicist, and certainly one of the most difficult things about working in, in the agency world, as I did um, for, for many years, was explaining to clients even before they signed on uh, for a, a campaign or, you know, a, a, a launch engagement, that the only guarantee here is that there are no guarantees. Um, mm. The difference between earned media coverage and advertising is that one can be guaranteed and the other cannot. It doesn't actually matter how good my relationships are with you know certain media contacts. I mean that can certainly help get the get the book into the consideration pile, but particularly when we're dealing with the big fish, um, places like the CBC or the Globe and Mail or the New York Times or the Washington Post. This is this is the Olympic of media. Every single book that is coming out is being sent to them. And it comes down to personal preference. It comes down to page space. Page space is diminishing for book review coverage. It has been for years and it's only getting worse. <laughs> um, so, so yeah. And, and, you know, I, I've certainly heard particularly in my days as a freelance publicist where authors would often uh, hire the, the agency or hi hire me to supplement the efforts of their in-house uh, publicity department. I'd, I'd hear tons of griping um, about, you know, how lazy they are. <laughs> <laughs> Did they even send my book in? And, uh, you know, I, I can't believe that they're, they're not, you know, doing everything in, the, in their power. Um, and the truth is, it's not that simple. And, and I actually have very little patience for, for that type of griping because everyone I, I know in this industry really cares about these books, wants them to, to succeed. Yeah. And the odds are, are really stacked against us a lot of the time. Um, so it requires really creative, really strategic, really diligent uh, work and a big stroke of luck. Yeah, luck and timing, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the other thing I would often, you know, sort of bite my tongue um, <laughs> about is it also comes down to the book. Um, you can have... Yeah the best publicist, the, the greatest marketing plan, all of the resources. But if that book doesn't land on the desk of that producer, that editor, that reviewer, that critic, and they go, I've got to read this. This is just, you know, I, I started it. I read five pages. I couldn't put it down. That's where the book comes into play. And yes, that's not yes. something your publicist can do for you. No, no. Well, I'm just, just winding down on the, the sort of the traditional work here. Let's look at, uh, and uh, a, again, I'm going to leg it here. He's talking about the fact that parties used to be a regular, <laughs> launch parties used to be a regular feature. Yes. Way less frequently now. 
he puts it is large amounts of liquor are consumed, lots of canapes, and the room where the party is held and the staff to serve the drinks and food have, have to be paid for. So it's an expensive business. The object of the exercise is to get publicity for the book and to persuade the booksellers to order it. But the amount of space the press gives on these occasions is usually very limited. And the booksellers present have already ordered the book if they're going to do so. So, so little is achieved. If your publisher does throw a party for you, you can consider yourself honored indeed. <laughs> yes, couldn't agree more with that. I, I do think, however, that in the wake of the, the pandemic time, um, and all, all of us, or you know, at least those of us who have some desire to be sociable <laughs> um, in our lives, uh, that, that there, there, we may see a, a swing towards a return of, of the publishing party, because what we've really realized is that there are limits. Um, to virtual engagement and, you know, missing those, those human networking yeah. in-person interaction moments. I will also add there that what he fails to, to mention, um, but, but almost sort of touches on there, is the pre-publication party, which used to happen quite a bit okay. um, in the, the pre-pandemic times. So for example, um, it's no longer with us, sadly, because it was my favorite publishing event of the year, but Book Expo would happen in yeah. New York City uh, at the end yeah. of every May. And if you wanted a, a taste of the olden golden days of publishing, um, you would certainly find it there because particularly, you know, the wealthier, bigger publishers would frequently throw parties uh, specifically for authors with forthcoming books who were those golden children for them. And they'd spend, you know, gobs of money um, yes. on so invite all the most important journalists, uh, booksellers, you know, the American Bookseller Association would be present um, and really fet this this author mm -hmm. who had a book coming out, book, book Expo would happen in May. Their book might be coming out in November or January of the following year. Um, and these were events really designed to build buzz, get the media and booksellers excited about this author, give them a nice night on the town so that they'd feel a little yeah. more affectionate towards that publisher. So there is some of that that, that has gone on uh, historically, and it's still quite effective. Um, we'll see now that we're, you know, fingers crossed in the, in the post-COVID um, or coming out of COVID uh, world, what, what remains. What I, what I can speak to with certainty is that, uh, you know, virtual events definitely had their, had their moment in 2020 and maybe even early 2021, but they've become next to impossible to produce successfully as all of us have gotten, I think, a little uh, weary of, of sitting behind our computer screens and, and pretending that like that's a substitute for human engagement. Uh, just uh, finally then on this traditional approach, uh, tours, most publishers and most booksellers hate signing sessions, which work well only when the author is a really major bestseller or nationally known personality. 
far more often the session is a depressing occasion with the publicity manager, the publisher's local representative, and possibly the book's editor making embarrassing conversation with the bookshop manager while the author sits miserably behind a pile of books waiting for the customers who don't come. I would debate with him on one point of that, which is that, you know, a successful event really hinges on um, the author being a national, you know, well-known personality. Obviously that that helps and that's always going to be a ticket to a successful event. But there is a bit of a chicken egg argument there about if you build it, they will come. Yes. But I would say it really hinges on, and, and, and that's where... Nigel, my story of the, you know, guys in the Toyota comes into play and and I'll be happy to go into that when, when you'd like to do so. But um, I would say what it hinges on more than the author being, you know, an already well-known personality is them being an engaging and dynamic human being. You know, I've worked with every kind of author you can imagine. And, you know, if you're not particularly talkative or personable, you don't like being around people, making small talk, Um, then, you know, in-person events are probably not the best course of action for promoting your book. But I've known other authors who, though it's their first book, though they don't have a huge, even social media presence, they're just dynamic, magnetic sort of personalities. And You just sort of have to capitalize on what you've got. What are your strengths? Correct. And this is something I I speak to, you know, publishers I work with about on a regular basis is when we go through that catalog and we go through that list, we talk about what's the best way to promote each of these books. Okay. The book is fabulous. You know, he's an incredibly credible, uh, you know, worthy author, but he's, a historian and you know he doesn't know how to use zoom and he has no interest in and and so we say okay you know what probably no interviews um or if they're interviews we're going to do them for print we're not going to you know put this author on a 20 city radio tour other authors news talk is their best friend because you listen to them on the radio for five minutes and you're like i gotta buy this book so yes it's really important i think for publicity uh and marketing to meet the author have a have a feeling for their personality and then where they're really going to shine yeah and just one final traditional thing here it's don't hesitate to ask your friends and relatives to read your book and to recommend it in turn to their friend. I mean, obviously, this is really, really <laughs> the slow, hard slog. But word of mouth is what is what works. Most non-writers find authors curiously glamorous. Should not hesitate to capitalize on this. Tell a stranger that you're an author, and immediate interest will almost always be will almost always be shown. Unless they're a book publicist, in which case (laughs) we might run to the other side of the room. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But but, Uh, but certainly that's true. Yeah. Okay. So um, we've come to the the end of the traditional part, unless there's anything else that you want to add to that. No, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I mean, to be be honest, Nigel, this is a, a topic that I could talk anyone's ear off on. So you you tell me where you want to go and and we'll go there. Very good. Okay. So what we've got then, as I say, it's sort of chronologically and you've been in it. And so have I in this really quite 
enormous transformation of the book conversation, if you will. Yep. We, we had that traditional setup. And then uh, I would say around the turn of the century, 2000, and then moving on from there, bloggers became increasingly influential. And it was quite a blogosphere. I was part of that. I mean, people like Mark Sarvis and uh, Maud Newton and Ed Champion. And, and I had a, a quite a popular book blog called Nota Bene Books. We were really quite busy writing a lot. And in many cases, it was very interesting stuff. Yeah. And a lot of people were engaged in kind of long form conversations. Now, they all did eventually get almost invariably kind of nasty and ad hominem. But in the, you know, on the journey there, there was a lot of interesting stuff. But I, what's happened is that was sort of 2005, 2015. And, and of course, everyone's migrated to social, but maybe you could talk a bit about that period. W were you busy, active then? Yeah, yeah, I was really just starting out. Right. I would say that is the world actually that sort of got me interested in publicity and, and media. Um, you know, I've always been a voracious consumer of media, which is how I became a publicist in the first place. Like I love right. magazines, radio, blogs, and, and yeah, that, that's really where it all, it all started for me. But, um, you know, obviously it, it dovetailed with the emergence of the internet as a common thread in all of our households and lives. And, uh, sort of the democratization of information where no longer was it just the gatekeepers at the Toronto Star and the New York Times Book Review and, you know, the CBC yeah. telling us. Yeah, it's very refreshing. And you know what was so exciting for me is that, uh, and I'm sure for these other uh, bloggers, is that if you did put some interesting stuff up, you got some very qualified and, you know, these traditional gatekeepers and big names, they would sometimes swoop in and weigh, weigh in. And so it was really quite an interesting uh, and I think exciting time. There was also the interaction that wasn't there. Yes, that's right. That's right. It, it, it became, you know, conversation instead of uh, just sort of, you know, proclaimed from on high. Um, and yeah, I mean, a lot of the gatekeepers were and frankly, still are uh, threatened by that um, because the ones who were smart enough to be threatened by it, you know, early on, the truth is their instincts were right. Um, we have seen the rise of uh, blog type media and the diminishment of traditional um, you yeah. know, jobs in, in journalism now and the ones that that there are, are super condensed and uh, it's a, it's a it, it is a different world it, it was a signal of the beginning of the end of, of something um, now yeah. I don't think traditional media is ever going away entirely no. but no. Uh, it's it's changed for sure so here we are with you as the publicist you know, prior to the advent of all these blogs, it was, okay, I know who the, you know, I know where to go. I know what to do. I just send it out to these folks. You had kind of a cushy, not terribly uh, challenging job. 
Now you've got to figure out, okay, so where does my particular author and book fit in and how can I get them into that conversation? Yes. So this was a big conversation um, when I was in the agency world. This was a big conversation for many years uh, about, I would say, starting about six or seven years ago, where previously it had been client signs on and has book week one, write the press materials and build the pitch list, which is effectively, you know, a, a handful of contacts from the list of say 300 outlets that we generally pitch um, and then start pitching. And yeah. increasingly that became just a bad, bad strategy. Like you do that and it would be crickets. So the conversation that, that emerged and, you know, something that really ultimately led me to strike out on my own uh, and now run Ceremony Achi PR um, is that there needs to be this, this strategy period now. You cannot expect a publicist to just be well-versed in every niche and every, uh, you know, online community that exists and know who the influencers are. Like, you're going to really need to take a close look at that book and figure out who is the audience. Where does this fit? Because going after the same you know, master pitch list that every other publicist and every other PR firm and every other publisher in the world is going after is like, you know, chasing a lottery ticket, chasing a lottery win. So, so yeah, uh, that, that has changed. I would say as well, it has resulted in the rise of the specialist, which I'm a huge supporter of. I still work with a few, um, you know, what, what you might call pretty disparate genres, like one of the publishers I represent um, is specific in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror uh, fiction community. But yeah. because I've been working with them for many years, that's become an area of specialty for me, where if you put a, a sci-fi novel on my desk, like I know exactly who, who to go to. Um, right, right. With, you know, I also- Who do you go to? SFF World, Sci-Fi Now, a whole host of YouTubers that have channels that have 50,000 subscribers where they talk about sci-fi books. Yeah. It's wild, you know, um, but I've taken the time, I've had the experience to, to build those lists, to know who those contacts are, and, and better yet, they know me. So when I reach yeah. out to them, it's not... So it really is uh, still, there's, it's list building as much as anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Uh, building, building a careful list and then positioning appropriately for sure. But, th but that list building, I think is much more challenging than, than it was before because the, the list is really endless <laughs> or it can be. Yes. Endless. Yes. So, so yeah, I, I think there, there's huge value these days in marketing in finding a specialist. And that doesn't mean that person only does one genre. Like, of course, I also work with Sutherland House books, and we primarily do nonfiction and the historical and public affairs, cultural space. So, you know, that's certainly also a, a, an area that I've developed over the years. But uh, yeah, gone are the days where you could expect that a, a book PR firm, specifically because they promote books, knows what they're doing with your book. Which is, which is such a, you know, books are unique. And so it's so interesting that the media landscape is splintering and into a, a kind of a, almost a reflection of all the different types of books that are out there. Yes, yes. Because now there are 
rabbit holes of, of interest areas. And it's so wonderful for people yes. who have specific interest areas. You know, yes. if you were interested in, you know, to go back to science fiction, like you'd be shocked once you start to really get into that community where, you know, even the the influencers who exist are like, I like military sci-fi. I like epic sci-fi. I do not yes. like alien sci-fi. I do not like, like there, are, there are like, you know, 600 subgenres yes. in the genre. Um, and, and so, and so. And each one of them has their own, their own sort of blogger and nerd, right? Usually like two dozen, absolutely. Yes. And, and so that leads me to the, the really, you know, one of the biggest points I want to make, which is that every author and every publisher wants those big wins. You know, they want the New York Times book review and the NPR book of the week. And yeah. and that. But yeah. if you're a military sci-fi book, for example, or if you're a World War II uh, nonfiction book, those hits, those coverage runs may not get you as far as yep. a few hits within your community where that YouTuber who covers military sci-fi, that podcaster who has not a World War II podcast, but the World War II podcast, it's run by yeah. a guy named Angus. He's fabulous. Um, but that podcast, you know, each episode gets 80,000 downloads. Yes. So but I, and even if it didn't, you know, first of all, he's writing really interesting material that's kind of evergreen. And he's attracting serious, uh, quote, influencers who are listening to his stuff. Yeah. So even if his numbers aren't gigantic. That's right. Even if even if it's the, the number is 500 people or 50 people yeah. who go to that yeah. blog, guess what? All 50 of those people are there because they want to know what new military sci-fi books are yeah. coming out. They they're they're, yeah, they're genuinely interested something's good they're gonna use word of mouth they're gonna tell people they're super engaged whereas you know that two-page spread in the global mail it's fabulous looks great it's so glamorous yeah. all your friends yeah. see it and everyone feels you know good but of the subscribers of the people who pick up the newspaper that day one maybe a, fra a, a small percentage of them are actually yeah. A, interested yeah. in the subject of your book and B, in the market to buy a book. Yeah. Also, as a publicist, it must be, I mean, especially if you're into the subject area, it must be way more fun to engage with these super passionate people. Yeah, it is. It is. I love it. I mean, you know? I, I love my traditional media contacts. Yes, too, of course. They're, you know, just incredibly <laughs> smart and well-rounded and like, yes. you know, yeah. I, I admire them and I, I, I get it. You know, I feel like I've been a publicist long enough that I can, I, I don't claim to be able to peer inside of an editor's mind, but, but I, I do feel like I've, I've developed a, a sense for what they're doing and how they're looking at every pitch, you know, not just how I look yeah. at the pitch or how the author, but, but, how the whole picture needs to fit together for them. But yeah, the specialist community is, is just so incredibly powerful and so important not to diminish as an author or a publisher when you're pulling together that marketing plan because it can make all the difference in the world for not only that book doing well out of the gate, but actually having a really long life um, and reaching exactly. the it's supposed to. Well, and so much of the big publicity machine is just trying to push the latest thing. Whereas, you know, I know with, with my podcast, uh, I don't really, I mean, sure, if it's an interesting looking book, 
I'll look at it and maybe pay attention, but I'm interested in the really, really good stuff. Okay. You know, the stuff that really will intrigue and interest listeners. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, and that is in publishing what they call the backlist problem. Yeah. Right? Backlist. It shouldn't be a problem though, because it still makes the money. In fact, it's easier money. Yeah, well, it's the, the backlist blessing and curse. The, the problem of the backlist is that there is never enough time, money, or people to do it all. Yes. And so yeah. with publishing, you're constantly like, oh my God, I'm already, you know, I work for publishers and our spring is in full swing right now of new releases, but we're already having to do lay the groundwork for the fall. So you're sort of constantly like a cat chasing its own tail. Um, yeah. You know, <laughs> cats don't do that. Dogs do that. <laughs> <laughs> cats, are too, cats are too smart to do that. Uh, exactly. Oh, look at him. What a sweetie. <laughs> It's her. It's actually. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. No, no, it's okay. That's... She's she's cool with that. I kicked mine out of the room because he was chirping at me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that always happens whenever I do a, any kind of interview. She just suddenly starts wanting attention. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, okay. I just want to get to a practical question then. What are these, all of these blogs? Exactly what do you do with your the book that you've got to market? What do you do? So with the blogs or? How do you approach blogs and what do you do? Depends on the blog and it depends on the book. But by and large, I would say, you know, the, the first and most important part of that process is going to be building the list in the first place. Okay. Uh, and this is this is something I've taught younger publicists is, you know, your pitch is going to go nowhere if the people you're sending it to aren't the right people. They're going to come back and say like, well, firstly, they might come back and say something nasty, like, right. You know, unsubscribe. Yeah. <laughs> Never email me yeah. again. I'm, I'm or, or, pay, or pay attention to my about page. It, it, oh no. I, those are the best ones when they're like, yeah. um, please refer to my <laughs> submission page. Yeah. You know, I've gotten more than enough of those in, in my lifetime to know that yeah. it's not a good feeling. You don't feel like you're representing your, your book yeah. well, and, yeah. you know, uh, so, so, so your list is the most important thing. Once you've built the list and accordingly added any relevant notes, i.e. this blog does not accept guest posts, or this one only does author interviews, or this one, you know, currently has a six month backlog on reviews, then you figure out how to pitch them. So yeah. the core of the pitch will generally stay the same. Hi, my name is Sarah. Or if it's someone I've pitched again, or, or I've pitched, you know, previously, hey, so-and-so, it's me. I've got a new book I think you're interested in. Yeah. Um, or effectively, it's, you know, hi, I'm Sarah. I represent X publisher. We have a new book coming out from this author called this. Here's a link to it. Here's why I think it's a great fit for you. I noticed you recently reviewed X, Y, and Z, which are really similar or, you know, this blurb compared this book to. Let me know if you'd like a review copy. Nothing necessarily knew about that. Basically yep. trying to convince them to pay attention. Yep. One thing I will say though, uh, which I think is really important and, and is certainly part of my philosophy as a publicist is that you're never going out asking for guarantees of anything. You're asking for 
consideration. You're asking for the opportunity to send them more information or a copy of that book. Um, it's really important to keep in mind, particularly with the influencers and bloggers, that more often than not, this is not their full-time job. They have a right. full-time job. Right. This is a passion right. project. So yeah. you can't go at them like, my book comes out on July 1st and the deadline for reviews is, is July 1st. No, 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 no. Um, you know, obviously yeah. you can say if there are, if there are preferences or um, this is, you know, really the type of coverage we're looking for. Can you offer that? Um, but, but going and saying, you know, I will send you a review copy in exchange for a review. No, yeah. there's no. no guarantee that they're going to get past the first 10 pages. Um, so I think there never was though. There never was obviously. I mean, I guess you automatically sent them out to traditional media, whereas whereas with these influencers, it's like, oh, here's your carrot. You can get a book, a free book. That's, you know, if they're serious, they don't want to get books that they're not interested in. That's right. That's right. And and of course, you know, over time as a publicist, you know, I have certainly built some relationships with influencers and what I would call people in the media space who they say, yeah, Sarah, if you have something that you think is up my alley, just send it to me. Like yeah. you don't need to check yeah. with me first, just send it yeah. to me and I'll assess and let you know, you know, if I'm gonna do anything with it. But uh, yeah, I mean, the approach itself, I always say, Nigel, what I do for a living is not rocket science. In, a, in one sentence, what is it? Oh my gosh. Um, identifying the right people for the right book at the right time in the right place and, and, and going at them in the right way, presenting it in the right way. And um, the right way is? Strategically, thoughtfully, in line with the book's message, in line with the author's vision, in line with that media outlet's audience. Like the right, the right way is going to be informed by the thing you're working on. Of course. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, I always think it's, it's connecting books, ideas, stories with the right audiences in the right way. And I, I would always say, um, and I will always say when I, you know, I'm talking to a new prospective client or what have you, here's what I can't guarantee. I can't guarantee that we're going to get said reviews for your book. I can't guarantee that they're going to be positive reviews. <laughs> I can't guarantee, you know, like here's a laundry list of stuff I can't guarantee. Here is what I can guarantee that we're going to work together really closely on establishing messaging for your book that feels, feels good, feels right, feels like how you want this thing to be presented to the world. I can guarantee that we're going to come up with a really carefully crafted strategic pitch list. So we're not just, you know, sending this thing out into outer space and hoping that something sticks. We're really identifying the right outlets and journalists and influencers um, to, to receive pitches and to receive review copies. And I can guarantee that I'm going to be very thoughtful and um, approachable in, in my follow-ups, in my pitches, and available to you throughout the process for questions, concerns, and brainstorming and all of that. Those are the things I can guarantee. What okay. happens from there? Mm. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so it's not rocket science, but it's a lot of elbow grease. That's for sure. Yes. Yes. Okay. So to summarize, and I'm quoting uh, Ken White here again from his newsletter. 
I like to call it shush. Uh, you call it shush? shush? I call it shush usually, yeah. Shush, shush like a librarian would call it. Exactly. Okay. So to summarize, reliance on mainstream media is increasingly untenable today because mainstream media is a shadow of its former self and a new range of publicity op uh, options led by influencers with newsletters, podcasts, blogs, YouTube channels, Facebook pages, etc., are picking up the slack. Now, I listened to one of your previous interviews. You very, well, not very surprisingly, but you, you focused on Goodreads. And I thought, yeah. geez, you know, and you know what the first thing I did was I went out and I do have a, a what do you call it there, a page there. Uh, and I added some of my interviews right after listening to you because I'm not paying any attention to it. And this is really important. This Goodreads, is it? Yeah. Yeah, I would say it's so important. Okay. Yeah. And the reason Goodreads is important is because it's one of the singular platforms on the Internet that is a social platform like it's it's facebook like yeah it's specifically designed for readers right unlike you know product pages on amazon and so forth it's a place where people can have actual conversations about books so you leave your review and then i respond to your review and then i like your review or i see your review and i add that book to my tbr which is to be read uh stack so yeah i mean yeah. but Particularly for, I would say, certain genres, and we can get a lot more granular on that. Um, but particularly for certain genres, Goodreads can be an incredibly powerful tool. What genres? Well, fiction in general, uh, okay. but specifically genre fiction, romance, sci-fi, crime thrillers. Okay. Huge community of readers on Goodreads. Self-help, uh, anything that's sort of personal development based uh, tends to be very, very, get a lot of traction on Goodreads. Yeah, I mean, it depends. History can can be very popular on Goodreads. Memoir, yeah, like I would say, it really each each community is pretty active there. Um, just some communities are bigger than others, which is the case with the industry in general. So your advice is don't ignore Goodreads. Focus, like what we've got is only a limited amount of time. So where do we spend our time? That's the question. Who who? That, uh, someone who's trying to publicize their book, either you or some author on their own. My listeners. Your listeners. Uh, let, have let, books. Your, let your book uh, guide that, that conversation. So one of the um, strategies I always like to look at when I'm starting on a new project, particularly when I feel like a little out of my depth, um, like it's a genre that I'm not incredibly familiar with is uh, reverse engineer the success of other books that are somewhat similar. So go on a little, you know, Google, what I call my Google foo, uh, Google foo journey, <laughs> um, spend <laughs> half a day, you know, Googling keywords, looking at the Amazon page, looking at the Goodreads page, seeing who reviewed it and when and where and what interviews did they do. And that will often help you start to pull together a plan of yeah. sorts, you know, obviously there are going to be factors like, oh, did that author have a huge social media presence prior to the book's release? Then 
that made a difference. So you're gonna have to find other ways of, of sort of compensating for that. Or did they do a, you know, a false speaking tour where they were selling books in addition to, so there are gonna be mitigating factors, but I think if you can find three or four other books that are sort of like your book and didn't yeah. come out 20 years ago, that's really important too. I had this conversation and it's like, yeah, but it came out in 1998. like we live in a different world today. So ideally, I would say from the past like 18 months, it yeah. doesn't need to be a perfect match, just needs to be sort of a, a comp to your vision for the trajectory of the book and, and start there. Because maybe you'll find that for the book that you wrote that, you know, it didn't really seem to do a lot on Goodreads, but there were other areas where it was really talked about like there were there were several YouTube interviews or um what have you that's really going to guide efforts I think okay yeah any much dealings with the uh, lit hub yes what do you do with uh, with them they have a few different arms at lit hub so one is the traditional site um of lit hub where they they exist very much like a traditional media outlet like there are editors there they have a new york office you send them advanced copies of books um pitch them with essay ideas they they love an author essay as anyone who reads lit hub will know i feel like i sort of touched on that but uh yeah yeah just to reinforce the message of know who you're pitching you know don't pitch every outlet with in the same way like with lit hub okay they want two or three ideas, just, you know, elevator pitches for, you know, I'm representing so-and-so, their book is about X and they can write about A, B, or C for you guys. Very good, what very are you good. Like? But LitHub, of course, also has a sister site called Bookmarks, which effectively aggregates uh, reviews that appear yes. for books. That is more like, you know, if your book is lucky enough to be, be reviewed by three or four prominent outlets, then you're going to appear there. If it's not, then there's probably very little you can do. And then LitHub also has a sister site called Crime Reads, um, which is oh, great okay. for, uh, you know, if you're a true crime book or um, thriller or fiction or horror um, or anything more pulpy uh, that would belong over there. Okay. So we're winding down here, Sarah. Cool. I could do this all day. <laughs> I do do this all day, actually. <laughs> uh, I just want to look at, uh, I am going to interview someone about uh, book talk, TikTok. Oh, yes. Specific to that. So we don't have to do that one. But can you tell me exactly how you would use BookTube, YouTube? What would you do? You've got the job to publicize this book. And you've got, you obviously, it depends on what kind of budget you got, but what would you do on YouTube? Very similar to pitching bloggers is find them first and foremost. Wouldn't you do something on your own for YouTube? No, I mean, unless the author already has an active presence on YouTube, in which case, you know, that would be very much like them sending out a newsletter or setting up a blog or setting up a tweet. Um, but if we're talking about pitching booktubers, then I would just treat them exactly the same. Okay. I was more interested in sort of using the medium. How would you use it? Is it like a 30 second? Some people, particularly in the fiction space, are really fond of creating book trailers, which are like, you know, 30 seconds, little sort of visual and, and musical accompaniments uh, to to their book. 
you do that? I don't personally make book trailers, but I, I can certainly, you know, include them in a press release or in a pitch to media or bloggers. In all honesty, I'm torn on the effectiveness of book trailers. I've seen some that are very effective, but most are pretty lackluster. And I don't think, you know, as you said before, Nigel, books are special. Um, I don't necessarily think that watching a 30 second, you know, graphic on a screen. Um, <laughs> well, really- no, but but uh, if the author has something really interesting to say about their own book, can you just stick a camera in front of them? Of course, but that hinges on whether there's an audience there. You can go to YouTube and see how many videos have like three views. <laughs> um, you know, right. that's not going to be valuable. So yeah, I mean, if if the author is is telegenic and has something to say and wants to do a Q&A, um, yeah, you'd put that on YouTube, but maybe you'd also put it on Instagram and you'd also put it on Facebook and you'd also put it on Twitter and you'd also put it on TikTok. Um, okay. I okay. work with, with a publisher who's currently doing that where we're, um, we designed a plan to give every author on the list five questions about their book um, and just, you know, put a camera. And so the publisher can use that as social media collateral. So instead of just sending out tweets saying this new book is out, um, we can say, you know, here, so-and-so talk about their new book in their own words for 30 seconds. So yeah, that video content, I mean, that would be more of a social media person's uh, role okay. I dabble in, but um, video yeah. is certainly king these days on all of the social media platforms. Like if you've gone on Instagram lately, you'll find it's 80% pushing video content at you. So well, that's definitely an emerging medium for sure. Okay. Um, anything else then on, you know, how to benefit from social social media when you're publicizing your book? That is such a big, big conversation that it's it's very difficult to condense. But just a couple of things off the top of my head would be, number one, before you start promoting your book, ideally cultivate a social media presence. Uh, no one likes following a spam bot. You know, you'll see authors who start an account a week before their book comes out and every single, you know, tweet or post will be about the book. And Even if I'm your best friend, I'm probably not going to follow you. So, you know, having a nice mix of of personal, you know, I always say 60-40 mix is good. 60% personal, 40% uh, promotional is is a a nice place to reach. Um, Use social media as well to, to engage in an authentic way, like actually join conversations Um, retweet other people's content. That's a huge aspect of it, actually, is that you've got to give to get on social media. So don't go on social media just expecting that, you know, people are going to amplify what what you're doing or saying or respond to it if you're not engaging and amplifying others. Social media can be an amazing way to build relationships with influencers, critics, you know, like-minded people, potential readers. Um, But you do need to look at it as building relationships, not as selling something to them. Um, because particularly the, particularly anyone, I was going to say like the, the younger generation, like the millennials and the Gen Zs, but, uh, but really I actually would revise that to say anyone who is adept at social media has been on it for a long time or a while can sniff out shameless self-promotion and <laughs> yes, sort of yes. like tunes out of it very quickly. If you're not engaging in an authentic way, if you're not interested in in giving, then you probably should just 
opt out, <laughs> which isn't a good idea either, but just recognize that you're not going to, you know, create a Twitter account or get on Instagram and immediately have, you know, 5,000 followers who, who all go out and buy your book. It's going to require some work on your part and, and certainly consistency. Okay. I just want to close with, uh, first of all, how do you go about uh, getting business? Like you've, you can't have too many clients because you've got to spend a certain amount of time on each one of them. Well, I, I certainly can have too many clients, but I, I choose not to anymore. No, but I mean, you have to do justice to each, exact, exactly. each so, book. I don't, I don't know, Nigel. I mean, I'm incredibly fortunate in that I've had the, the pleasure and benefit of working with some amazing people over the years who are both great publishers and authors, as well as people. Like who? Uh, like Ken White from, from Sutherland House Books, like uh, Nick Wells from Flame Tree Publishing in the UK, who is a, a wonderful contact and client, like various literary agents um, in New York and, and further afield. And, and many authors like Joshua Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, otherwise known as The Minimalists, who are a great self-publishing success Which story. is great, because that's how I want to end. <laughs> yeah, so I, I've had the great fortune of working with just some incredible people. And, and quite frankly, I am in a position where I don't have a website, I don't promote myself, um, and I, I'm kept busier than I'd like to be much of the time. So uh, I need to think about that as I... <laughs> <laughs> continue on in my career and exactly, uh, you know, whether I want to grow or I want to stay the same size or, or what have you. But um, yeah, if, you know, if anyone listening to this wants to contact me, um, you know, I'm on Twitter. You can always find me there uh, at Sarah Miniachi and my email address is Sarah at Sarah PR.com. So I always love hearing from new people and, you know, I'm always down to just have a 30 minute chat about your project um, where my schedule allows but uh yeah in terms of in terms of my my workload i'm i'm good right now so maybe if you have a 2023 or 2024 book uh, <laughs> okay and let's just hear about these minimalists a bit more like what did they do yeah. how did you help favorite, uh favorite publishing success stories because to me they really live a lot of the live a lot of the lessons that we've talked about today. Um, and they've taught me a lot as, as people, as, as uh, authors. So I began working with the minimalists. Oh, again, I'm terrible with years, but um, I think over 10 years ago now, at which point they had recently self-published their first book, which was called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. Um, they were two guys from Dayton, Ohio, who in their early 30s decided to quit their corporate jobs and embrace a life of minimalism, which you can go to their website, theminimalists.com to read all about. They had just self-published their first book. And I think because they came from the corporate world, they really had a, a very savvy understanding of where marketing might fit into uh, the success of their endeavor. So they decided that they would hire a publicist. They would book their own book tour. I think the first one was 10 or 12 cities uh, throughout the U.S. and Canada. They would drive around in, a, in their Toyota Corolla couch surf or you know stay at motels or do what they needed to do um, those girl is uh, those they'll drive forever 
Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're sturdy little beasts, right? And, and, you know, hire a publicist and just book these venues in cities, some of which where they knew people, some where they didn't. And just let's, let's get the word out. Let's just, you know, promote the, promote the heck out of this book. So the first tour came and went and it did very well because at the time, I mean, now minimalism, we've seen Marie Kondo and we've seen these guys and it doesn't seem like such a radical message, but at the time it was, it was incredibly refreshing. People were what? I mean, this was the age of the girl boss and, you know, hustle culture. And so it was a, it was really refreshing message. Anyways, you know, I could talk through their, their story in great detail, but effectively uh, they continued doing this and, and really living by the philosophy of if you build it, they will come um, for a number of years. In 2014, I believe they booked a 100 city world tour, uh, which I was the publicist for. That same Toyota Corolla uh, took them to 70 something cities in the States, uh, I think 10 in Canada and a few in the UK and Australia. Um, it's, it's, but, really, it's really part of the whole life, isn't it? It's a, it's a life. It's just having fun and taking off and using this as a, a pretext. Absolutely. And, and just not giving up, you know, just the power of perseverance as well. I, the, the, one of the greatest lessons from their story, I think, is that unlike a lot of authors I've met and worked with over the years who expected all of their hopes and dreams to come true in 12 months yeah. or 18 months or two years, yeah. these, these guys just kept at it. Um, and they kept at it and they kept working at it and they, the consistent effort, it's like going to the gym, right? Like everyone wants the six week success plan. But the truth yeah. is that after two years, after three years, you're going to start to see those real results, but nobody wants to, to put in five days a week at the gym. We just want no. the six week magic plan. Um, and that, that doesn't exist. So, you know, to make a long story short, by the end of 2014 in that 100 city world tour, um, the Today Show, which we had at that point been pitching for like three or four years, picked up the phone and said, yeah, let's let's have a mom. Like, let's do it. And things really exploded from there. The following year, the first uh, of their Netflix documentaries came out. Um, they now have two. And it was one of the most watched documentaries on Netflix of that year. They now have two documentaries. Uh, their latest book, which is called Love People Use Things, was released by uh, Celadon. Uh, last year and immediately hit the New York Times bestseller list. They have a number one podcast on iTunes. You know, this really yeah. was a blood, sweat and tears, not giving up and just putting in the work, trusting the process, trusting the journey, trusting that. Well, lo loving the journey too. That's right. Loving okay. the journey, not expecting that. Publicity is an overnight process because uh, it's, it's really not, it's a really windy road, um, but, but never losing sight of that audience. Who is that audience? And connecting with them in an authentic, valuable way, adding value, not just taking away, not just selling something. That's a huge part of their message. And I think it's a message that authors everywhere can really benefit from. They still have the Toyota? It's a good question. Probably, you know what? Knowing them, probably. <laughs> I'll have to ask them next time I chat with them. They were also connecting face to face with readers, which is, yeah. and getting feedback and being able to explore ideas with them. That's what it's about. Absolutely. And you know what? Some, at some tour stops in some cities, it would be 
three people, one of whom was the bookseller and at others. I, I remember very specifically in 2014, their Los Angeles tour stop, which was at a, a huge bookstore in, in downtown Los Angeles called The Last Bookstore. I know that. I know that store. They got a, a big circular book thing you can walk through. They do. It's very, very cool. There was a crowd when they pulled up that day, there was a crowd lined up for several blocks. We had no idea that was that was coming. You know, this was uh, just boots on the ground, just, you know, hit the road onto the next city. I'd be booking them at crazy times, 6 a.m. You got to be at this TV studio to do, <laughs> uh, you know, a, a spot. So it was, it was fun. We all had fun, but, but yeah. it certainly ultimately proved to be effective. And it is that that philosophy of just, if there are three people who want to hear what you have to say, then, then talk to those three people. You know, no audience is too big or too small. That's great. Well, uh, it's been such a pleasure connecting with you, even though it wasn't in person. Well, this is a this is a Zoom meeting that's a real a real pleasure to have, and I hope that I was able to add some value uh, for for anyone who listened to this. And and for yeah, me, you answered all my questions beautifully. I thought. Thank you. And thanks again for having me. And again, how can people get a hold of you, Sarah? So I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm twitter.com slash Sarah Miniachi, Sarah with an H and Miniachi is M-I-N-I-A-C-I. Uh, my email address is Sarah at Sarah Miniachi PR.com. And of course you can find me on LinkedIn too. Um, and all the, all the usual places online. Fantastic. Thanks so much again. Thank you, Nigel.